The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We are in 1 Corinthians, as I said. I was able to meet some visitors this morning, which happens just about every week. Uh, so that's always a highlight and a blessing. God brings different people our way. And so by uh, way of review and bringing folks up to speed, uh, just a brief note about where we're at in 1 Corinthians. We are going through the book of Corinthians one chapter at a time, chapter 1 all the way to 16, because that's how Paul wrote it to the Corinthian church. Uh, we are now finishing chapter 1. So today we're going to look at verses 26 through 31. And Paul's writing to a church that he actually started, he planted, he pastored, and he went away for a little bit, and then it was having problems, and now he's writing back as their pastor and as apostle to help them out and straighten them out. And so we're going to pick up uh, verse 26. Follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 16, or uh, chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. After talking about the content and meaning of the cross in 18 to 25, he transitions from the gospel to now the, the people of God. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man or no one may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verse 31. Look at verse 31 again. So that just as it is written, just as the Scripture says, just as the Bible says, just as the Old Testament says authoritatively, the Word of God, the written Word of God, let him who boasts, let him who brags, let him who verbally praises someone else. The meaning is, or the intent is, boast only in the Lord. That's kind of the exclamation point at the end of this chapter. The, main, the crescendo of what Paul was trying to communicate to the Corinthians to solve their problem. We've got to get focused. If you're going to boast and brag and give praise, it needs to be done only to the Lord. Bragging and praise and adulations and anything else that express shouldn't be towards man or self. It's only to the Lord. And he ends that chapter by quoting from Jeremiah chapter 9, 23. With that, by way of introduction, before we look at verse 26 of 1 Corinthians, everybody who has a Bible, whether written or electronic, uh, turn to Proverbs 27. We're going to look at one verse, then we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians 26. Proverbs, uh, the book God gave to the Old Testament believers to help them with practical daily living in life and how to be wise in all practical areas of life. And in Proverbs 27, verses 1 and 2, he's talking about boasting and why we shouldn't do it. This, if you are a human being, I think that qualifies most of us. We, we struggle with this, with boasting. So this is a, a divine corrective. So think about, uh, don't boast, says verse 1, but I want to highlight verse 2. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. In other words, let another person brag about you and not your own mouth. Don't brag about yourself. Don't talk about how good you are. Don't talk about how good you used to be. Don't talk about... So it's not... Don't verbally elevate yourself. That's a command from God. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. So therein lies the challenge. This is biblical wisdom. This is what God expects from believers. The world lives just the opposite. The world tells you to brag about yourself, praise yourself, love yourself, elevate yourself, live for self. That's the world. That is the exact opposite of what God wants believers to do. So let another praise you and not your own lips. Boy, that's challenging, isn't it? Here's some questions to think about in light of that. 
Do you ever initiate conversation with people or your friends or initiate an idea of how good you were at something in elementary school, high school, or college? And you just list, I was this great musician. I was this great athlete. I was this great whatever. Think about yourself. Don't think about the person next to you. Think about yourself. Do you ever do that about yourself? Rehearsing your a litany of your accomplishments in your past? Do you talk about how people say good things about you? So-and-so said I'm gifted in this area. So-and-so said I'm good at this. So-and-so. Actually, that's kind of a backdoor way of boasting about yourself when you quote somebody else who was talking about how great you are or when I do that. And that is boasting. That is forbidden. That is not to be done. That, that is pride is what it is. It's bottom line. When you brag about yourself or talk about yourself or when I brag about myself, that's boasting. That is prideful. That is sinful. That is wrong. That is self-centered. It doesn't please God. How often in conversation do you talk about yourself just in general? Are you, if you're talking about somebody and it's, the focus is always on you, that means you are a self-centered person. Or if I did that, I am a self-centered person. And that goes along with boasting and being prideful. Uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is because the Corinthians had a problem. Paul started that church. He planted that church. He pastored that church for a year and a half. He left it for three years. Uh, it got into trouble. He heard about it from many sources. From He got word from Apollos, from Chloe's people, from three men who were part of that church, from a letter that the Corinthians had written, from Timothy. I mean, all this first-hand report that there, there were problems. There was division. And the root of the Corinthians' problems was pride. That was the root. And so that's why he quotes this verse at the end of that chapter. He's trying to expose and cut out their pride. So the root problem with the Corinthians is they had pride. They had an inflated view of self. We know that all throughout. We're going to see that in the epistle. They were impressed by their spiritual gifts, chapter 1, verse 7, and later on in the book. So they had an inflated view of self. Look at how great my spiritual gift is. They also had an inflated and wrong view of other of human beings in general, just whether it was Apollos or Paul. Or, so they put human, sinful, fallen human beings on an illegitimate pedestal. So they had an inflated wrong view of self, an inflated wrong view of sinful humanity and fellow people. And as a result, they had an inferior view of God and of Christ. By virtue of lifting themselves up and lifting humans up, they of necessity pushed God down and pushed Him out of the place of preeminence and in glory. They were impressed by their own spiritual giftedness. They were also impressed with their own knowledge and how much they knew. After all, they were in the Greek culture and our forefathers were the Greeks, the smartest men in the world, whether it was Plato or Socrates, Aristotle, all those guys. And they prided themselves on intellectual knowledge. And so the Corinthians fell into that and so that's what Paul uh, rebukes them for 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, and then he also deals with it at length later on in the epistle. We're going to see that. So they boasted about their knowledge and how much they knew. This, this kind of person typically will say things like, well, I know, I know. You try to have a conversation with them, and they're, I know, I know, I know, I know. They're a know-it-all. That is arrogant. That is prideful. That lacks humility. They are not teachable. That was the Corinthians. And that's why Paul has to rebuke them right between the eyes and says, knowledge puffs up. You are full of pride. You think you know everything. You are not teachable. And so this was at the root of the Corinthians' problem. So he attacks this pride and this self-centered view with the linchpin of verse 31, quoting from Jeremiah 9.23. So uh, that's just an introduction. Now just by way of reminders of... Uh, Paul in Corinth. Now you can flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we're going to go ahead and look at verses 26 to 31 and hopefully just to make it easier I broke it up into three parts. Uh, those three points there. We'll look at those today and see what Paul's exhortation is to these Corinthians to try to get them back on track. Again, Paul doesn't assume that they're unbelievers. He assumes they're Christians and they've just deviated and they've compromised and they're, they've got some sinful thinking so he needs to correct it. So Paul, uh, on a second missionary journey after being saved, he went through, came through Athens, and then he ended up in Corinth. 
and Corinth uh, was the capital city of that area. It was a huge city, possibly nearing a million people at the time, or maybe less than that. So that's a massive, huge city in the days of Paul 2,000 years ago. And it was a port city, had people coming and going on either side. So it was a cosmopolitan city. And we know from history it was a very immoral city, and we likened it to San Francisco and Amsterdam and other very worldly, immoral, compromised cities of the world today. That was Corinth. And that's where Paul came into it. And he just started preaching the gospel and people eventually started to believe him. And he started this little church in this very sinful culture. And he stayed there for a year and a half and pastored it. And that was around, he stayed there from about AD 50 to AD 52. And then he left. And within about three years, he's ministering now in Ephesus. And while he's in Ephesus, building a church and pastoring a church in Ephesus is when he got word that the church at Corinth was having major problems and it needed the attention of the, the apostle Paul to deal with their problems. So he writes this letter. And the main thing that did this 16 chapters, this is very important. Paul writes these 16 chapters. What this is, this is a corrective to the Corinthians' thinking. The Corinthians have wrong behavior, and the way that Paul deals with it is he corrects their thinking. And I found this to be true in years of ministry and dealing with problems in the church and counseling Christians who have problems and confronting Christians who have sinful problems. I think 100% of the time when a Christian had wrong behavior, it was based on wrong thinking. It's really that simple. you got a Christian behaving the wrong way, I guarantee you they are thinking the wrong way. You are what you think. You'll say what you think. And so every one of the epistles in the New Testament that is corrective, first and foremost, addresses the thinking of the believers. And that's why this is so practical for us, because our thinking needs to be addressed. Our thinking needs to be challenged and exposed. Our thinking needs to be corrected because we are fallen, sinful human beings as well. So we're going to benefit and we will continue to benefit as we go through Corinthians. So far, I've had several people actually tell me that they have benefited from going through Corinthians in a practical way in their own life. And that's because this is the living word of God even though it was written 2,000 years ago, the truths transcend time and the Spirit personalizes them to our own life where we are. It's the beauty of God's Word. So hopefully we're going to see that today in the three points we highlight with the Corinthians as Paul addresses their thinking to correct their thinking. And like I said, the main thing that he's going to correct about their thinking in verses 26 to 31 is the fact that they were prideful and they were impressed with the wrong thing. I brought that up last week. What are you impressed by? Who impresses you? The Corinthians were, became impressed by the wrong thing. They became impressed by the cult, the sinful culture around them. They became impressed by human capability and human ingenuity. And we do the same thing in our culture today. Who are we impressed by? We are impressed by famous people, movie stars, famous athletes, famous musicians, those who have a lot of money, those who have the limelight, those who have power. That's just human nature. We are impressed by the wrong things, and that's how the Corinthians got themselves into trouble. They weren't always this way, though, because when they heard the gospel and they heard Paul preaching this gospel, telling them that they were sinful and they couldn't save themselves and they needed a Savior, they believed it and they embraced that. Originally, they weren't thinking this way, but now they have deviated from biblical thinking with a proper view about self, that they are sinful and undeserving, and a proper biblical view of self or of God, that God receives all and deserves all the glory. Now they have deviated and gotten off track. They got their thoughts wrong. They think the wrong way about themselves. Now they think the wrong way in an inferior manner about God Almighty. And so the point here is to get their thinking back on track properly about who they really are, what they used to be, and how great God is. Boy, we can apply that to our own life, that challenge. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, First, we'll look at verse 26 in the challenge of their thinking there. And that's point number one, where Paul, in essence, tells the Corinthians, boast... I put boast there because that's kind of the theme. That's how chapter 1 ends. And also, it's a challenge to what they were doing. What The Corinthians were boasting. What were they boasting in? The wrong thing and the wrong people. They were boasting about themselves and their gifts. And they were boasting about sinful humanity the wrong way. They were boasting about Apollos. Wow, Paul was here and he was kind of weak and simple-minded and he preached the gospel, blah, blah, blah. But then Apollos came in and man, he was snazzy. He was glitzy. He used big words. He was persuasive. He was eloquent. Wow. 
He oohed and awed us with his delivery and his methodology and his rhetoric. So they were impressed. They were boasting in the wrong thing. They were boasting in Apollos illegitimately. Apollos was not a bad guy. He was God's servant. But they were boasting in Apollos for the wrong reason. They were boasting in his superficial human capabilities. So that's why I'm point number one. Don't boast in human things or self. Boast only in God in light of your past condition. So he's talking to Christians. So the message is for us. Hey, Christians, boast only in God in light of our past condition, meaning before we got saved. Well, what were we like before we got saved? We were weak and helpless. That's verse 26. Let's look at it. Verse 26 says, for consider your calling. This is the New American Standard says, for consider your calling. The Greek text literally says, see yourself. Look at yourself. Evaluate yourself honestly and properly. Stop Pause and do a self-diagnosis of who you truly are and what you used to be before you got saved. Because you know what that will do? That will humble you, Christian. That will humble me. That's the command. This is an imperative. This is a command. This is what we must do. This is practical application. Do this. Stop. Pause. Evaluate yourself and examine and remember what you were like before you got saved. For me, it would be, okay, what was I like before the age of 19? Because I got saved at age 19. Ooh, yucky. Yucky, ugly, messy, rebellious, lost, insecure. I mean, I could go on and on. And at the same time, God was even being gracious before I got saved. Saving me from myself. Saving me from permanent self-inflicted wounds that I could have done as a reckless unbeliever. Lost, insecure, no hope without God in the world. Uncertain about everything who I was, direction in life, the meaning of life, the purpose of life, where I would go when I die. No joy, ultimately. So this is what he's saying. Consider your calling, brethren. Christian, look at yourself and see what you were like before you got saved. Well, I got saved when I was three. So before I got I was in diapers. I, well, I can't remember. And that might be true of some of you. You, got, you grew up born and raised in a Christian home and you got saved earlier on in life. And so you didn't have this past clear life of being an alcoholic and a drug addict and all that stuff when you were two because you can't drive yet when you're two so understand that but at the same time the command applies to every christian you need to stop pause and look at your life of what you would be without christ in your life had he not saved you that's what we need to do and so that's what paul is asking the corinthians to do he's again he's challenging their thinking and he's challenging them to have the right perspective their perspective was wrong it was prideful self-centered and demeaned god So stop, pause, and examine yourself. You you think too highly of yourself. You're all high and mighty about yourself. And Paul's saying, you ain't nothing, Christian, really. In and of yourself, you ain't nothing. Verse 26 goes on. For consider your calling. By the way, the word calling is synonymous with salvation. Consider what you were like before you were called at the point of salvation, before God saved you. And that there, and so he's going to remind the Corinthians. We don't know how big the church was; could have been multiple house churches together, but it could have been hundreds, maybe in the thousands. And Paul's addressing all these Corinthian Christians, and he says this. Now, I want to remind you of what you were really like before you got saved, before you had these snazzy, glitzy spiritual gifts, and you spoke in tongues, and all this stuff. That in the Corinthian congregation, there were not many that were wise. Sophia, wisdom, philosophy, the love of wisdom. Sophia, he's used this word a few times already. He's talking about worldly wisdom. Not many of you, in the, and he says, by the way, not many of you were wise according to the flesh. In the eyes of the world, by human worldly standards, not many of you were the elite wise ones or the elite intellectuals. Not many of you were. And in Paul's day, in the Greek culture, the elite were the ones who were educated It was the few that were formally educated, very few, and they were looked up to and they were put on a pedestal and people would bow down to them, the the wise ones, the wise gurus of the day. So they were few and far between in Paul's day and especially in the Corinthian culture. Because the supermajority of the population in the city of Corinth in the days of Paul were slaves. As a matter of fact, the city of Corinth was wiped out and destroyed by the Romans in about 150 B.C just obliterated then a hundred years later julius caesar rebuilt the city 
And one of the ways that they rebuilt the city is they had to repopulate this desolate city. And one of the ways they did it is they just took a, a tremendous amount of slaves and put them in the city of Corinth. And ever since that time, probably the supermajority of people and citizens in Corinth were slaves. They were the low, lowest of the low. They were uneducated. They were illiterate. They were not considered wise by the world. They had very few rights. They were poor. They were uh, at the mercy of their masters and people who had money and influence. So that was the makeup of the demographic of Corinth. And so these were the people who were getting saved. So the Corinthian church reflected that same demographic. Most of the folks in the Corinthian church were slaves. They weren't educated. They weren't high intellectuals. They were just kind of normal people and even below the par of being a normal person, not being really educated and being totally illiterate. Many of them were poor and many of them were slaves. And get this, many of them were women. Women in the Roman and Greek culture at that time were demeaned. You don't have female Greek philosophers who were idolized and praised and highly educated. So women were looked down upon and they weren't considered the intellectually elite. So Paul's saying, wow, you guys think you're all high and mighty now. You're all proud of yourself. But the reality is look at who you are now that you're a Christian, what you got saved from. You weren't the intellectually elite. You weren't the wise ones. You're just normal people. Then he goes on. Not only were, are most of you just um, not the wise ones, but also not many of you are mighty. Dunamis is the word. Duna, dynamite means power. Actually, dynamite came from the word dunamis. Dunamis is a word for miracles in the New Testament. Dunamis means a lot of different things in the context. But this just means people of power, people of influence, people of persuasion people in positions of power whether it's government positions influential positions and he's saying wow all of you that got it not many of you are influential mighty people you're just kind of the lower class the lower caste you don't have any influence as a matter of fact some of you are slaves some of you are poor or actually many of you are now there were few that got saved that were powerful as a matter of fact, we read in Acts 18 how the synagogue ruler, this was a man of authority and influence. He actually got saved, but that is very rare. That's why he says not many. He doesn't say none of you are mighty. He said not many of you recognizing that Crispus and Chloe and uh, Justice and a couple others who got saved, they were mighty people in terms of power and influence, but that was not the norm. As a matter of fact, God is in the business of saving normal people. That's his point. And then he finally says, so not many of you are the intellectually elite. Uh, not many of you are the powerful movers and shakers of society and high society. And then finally he says, and not many of you were uh, noble. Not many of you were noble. That word noble in the, in the English, actually the Greek word is it's a compound word. You, which means good, E-U, like eulogy. Good words we say about somebody when they're dead. E-U. And then uh, genes, Genesis, the beginning, birth. So noble literally is good birth. Not many of you are those who are of good birth. You know what this is? This is those of you, not many of you are of royalty. Not many of you are of royal blood. Not many of you came from these prestigious, high-profile royal families. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about your birth, right? What family you came from. You are not of royalty, you are not a privileged person. You aren't one of the Bush family members or all, all these politicians who just go on for generations. You were not born with a silver spoon in your hand or your mouth. That's what it's talking about. You're just a McManus. What's that? Oh, that's a nobody. That's me. There ain't no royalty in my blood except by adoption through Jesus. So these are the three categories of people. Is just reminding them of who you are. This is who you are. In other words, who were you before you got saved? Well, you were weak, helpless, and a nobody. And you know what? God saved you anyway. Isn't that amazing? The point is that God's standards are totally different than the world's standards. If you left it up to the world and you told the unbelieving world, okay, you decide who should get saved and go to heaven. And then their conditions and stipulations would be totally different. They'd be looking for those who are of royalty. They'd be looking for the aristocracy and the movers and the shakers and the ones that have a lot of money and the ones that have success and wooing personalities and the ones that can scratch my back when I need it. That kind of thing. 
Their standards are totally different. God's standards are just the opposite. God's standards are baffling to the world. You mean these? You chose to save the scum of the earth? Really, God? Yeah, actually, I did. Wow. So that's where the Corinthians needed to do a reality check. They they weren't nothing. So that's point number one. Boast only in God in light of your past condition. We were weak and helpless. Go on to number two. Boast only in God in light of His ultimate purpose. God had a purpose in saving those that He did. Why did God save you? That would be an interesting answer to see if you wrote it down. Why did God choose to save you? Don't answer out loud. Think about it for a second. Why did God choose to save you? Here are some answers that I've received in the past. And none of these people are here today. So they will not be embarrassed. Some of these I've actually just read in books as well. Why did God save you? Here's one, because, because He needed me. I mean, I've actually had that answer. No. God is omniscient. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. He is eternal. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. That is not why He saved you. Why did God save you? Because I deserved it. Ah, wrong answer. Because I earned it. Ah, wrong answer. Why did God save you? Because He was obligated to do so. No, He wasn't. So these are human answers I'm giving and rejecting, but these are considered by people, and God's saying, no, that is not why I saved you. Boast only in God in light of His ultimate purpose, His purpose. The reason He saved you, the reason He saved me, real simple, His glory. For His glory, for His good. That's why He saved me. Here's another question that's a counterpart. How did God save you? No, how did you get saved? How did you get saved? And you can say a lot of things. Well, I was uh, so-and-so witnessed to me when I was in college or my mother witnessed to me or whatever. How did you get saved? One key ultimate answer is that God chose you. I don't know if that's a part of your thinking or paradigm, but it should be. How did you get saved? How did you become a Christian? Answer, God chose you. Wow, really? I thought I chose God. God selected you. God elected you. God chose you. That's how you got saved. That's how I got saved. Well, how do you know that? Well, that's what the Bible... So let's look at verse 27 through 29. Three times, God reminds the Corinthians, oh, by the way, you know how you got saved? God chose you. Because the Corinthians, some of them, had wrong thinking, thinking that they got saved because they deserved it or because they were impressive or because they were better than others or because God was obligated to do so or because God needed their help. They were thinking the wrong thing. And Paul says, not. So emphatically, three times he tells the Corinthians, and this is true of us, but God has chosen. That is synonymous with calling in verse 26. That is synonymous with God has saved you. And he says, has chosen three times. God has chosen you. God has chosen you. God has chosen you. It was God. It was his initiative. It was not your initiative. He started it. He accomplished it. Salvation is all of God. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. And that's talking about who he saved. God didn't save all these intellectual elites, first and foremost. God saved just the opposite. What is the opposite of somebody who is intellectually elite? It is someone who is uneducated, Illiterate, illiterate, and in the eyes of the world, they are foolish. They aren't smart. God saved the unsmart people. And actually, the little Greek word here is the morons. That's the Greek word. If you're not in the intellectual elite, you are a moron. I am a moron, and I am proud of it. Thank you very much. But God has chosen the morons of this world. God has saved the morons of the... God has saved just the normal... Old people who don't have the highest IQ. God has chosen and saved those people to shame the wise. And then in the middle of verse 27, and God has chosen, God has saved the weak things of the world. The weak, that is in contrast to what he said earlier, of the strong. The weak, not physically weak, these are 
in terms of social status. You're just a ho-hum, normal person, blue-collar person. Nobody knows you. You don't have influence. Uh, you're not a manager. You're not the president. You're not a CEO. You're not a mover and shaker. You don't have money materialism, and people don't ooh and awe every time they see or look at you. You're just a weak thing. You're just a normal person. You're not the high and mighty in society. And God has chosen a lot of the weak people, the lowly people of the world. He has chosen. So two times. God has chosen. God has chosen. God has saved. God has saved. God has called you. God has called you. God has elected you. God has elected you. He's hammering in their heads. You didn't save yourself, Corinthians. God did it. It was his work. And by the way, you were weak when he saved you. And he did it to shame uh, the things which are strong, the those in the world who are impressed by the wrong things, the strong of the world. And then verse 28, the third time he says, God has chosen. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. So there's the third use of chosen in verse 28. God has chosen, God has saved, God has elected the foolish of this world, the non-influential people of this world. And then verse 28, where it says the base things, the literal Greek word, is from Genes again, Genesis. You're beginning, and it's a compound word again, agene, agenes. A means not. God has saved those of no birth, of no significant birth. You are not of royalty. You were born a nobody. That's what base literally means. And it's specifically in contrast to the word he used in verse 26 where he, he talked about those of noble birth. He actually, you are of no birth and an insignificant birth. Your family, mean, your family name is not impressive. So God has chosen, God has chosen, God has chosen. How did God save you? Well, he chose me. Uh, look at Ephesians. I want you to go to a parallel passage. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 1. We went through Ephesians uh, at the beginning of the church seven years ago. But just look at Ephesians chapter 1 where he uses the same word, the same Greek word, chosen. And it's in the same context of how you got saved and why God saved you. So how did you get saved? God chose me. Why did God save me? Well, here's an additional answer that's very important in Ephesians chapter 1. So look at verse 3. We'll go through quickly down to verse 14. Paul's writing to Christian Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us Christians with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ since we have been saved. Verse 4, just as He chose, there it is, He chose, He saved, He elected us in the past. It was His choice. Well, I thought I chose God. Well, you did if you're a Christian. I chose God and He chose me. I chose God by believing. I responded to the truth that I heard. I responded to the gospel that God initiated through belief. I exercised my will. I repented of my sin. So there is an element where God uses the human personality and the human will and the human initiative to respond to His choosing. So I did do something. I chose. I chose to believe. But before that, God chose to save me just as he chose us in Christ. Get this. When was I chosen by God? Well, according to verse four, God chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. That is mind boggling. God chose to save me before I was born. Whoa. How is that possible? I don't know how that's possible. Other than God is bigger than I am. He is eternal. That's what he said in his word. I can't comprehend that. It hurts my brain. I believe it by faith. And if I were an unbeliever. I would resist that truth tenaciously. That's not fair, would be the hue and cry. Yeah, on a human level, it would appear that way. But we have enlightened understanding with the Holy Spirit, knowing that God is communicating truth to us, reminding us of how great He is and how we got saved because we couldn't save ourselves. He had to do it because we couldn't save ourselves. So He chose us. He elected us. That's a synonym. He elected us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Not looking ahead thinking, oh, McManus is going to believe. That isn't how it happened. It was God's initiative the entire time in eternity past. Uh, just as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in this life and in love he predestined us to adoption see that happened before the world began too. verse 5 predestination he predestined us to adopt us spiritually as sons through jesus christ to himself here's the key why did god choose to save me well verse 5 according to the kind intention of his will out of his kindness that's why why did god save me just out of sheer kindness 
which is a, an outpouring of his love. Isn't that amazing? It's not because I deserve it. It was just because he was being kind. Out of love, God chose me. Why else did he save me? Verse 6, to the praise of his glory, so that he might receive the glory, so that he might be praised. He saved me that when I got saved, I might worship and praise him. That's why. Why does God save anybody? Well, and make decisions to choose them and elect them so that he might receive the praise, so that he might be praised. By the way, that phrase, to the praise of his glory, is in verse 6. And then in verse 12, to the praise of his glory, it is there again. And then in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Three times God is being emphatic as he's talking about why he saves the people that he does. And two times he says it is out of his kindness because of his love for sinners. And then he also says it is because that he might be praised, not us. He saved us apart from works so that we might not boast. All boasting goes to God because it was all His initiative. And He chose us based on nothing we did. We contributed zero. The only thing we can contribute to the process is a prayer of faith and a prayer of repentance. As God moves on our heart and opens our eyes with the truth of His gospel. Go ahead and go back to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. So how did you get saved? God chose you, God chose me. And he did it through election. And why else did God choose to save me? Such a lowly loser that I am. I am not wise. I am not influential. I am not of noble birth. Why did God choose such a lowly scum of the earth like me? That is the phraseology of Paul in Corinthians. The scum of the earth. Why do you do that? Well, the third reason is so that he might shame the wise. He might shame the world. That he might humiliate the unbelieving, ungodly world and their false standards of what they think is important and what is to be aspired to and praised. It is a lie. So three times, Paul tells us right here that God chose the lowly and to save them that He might shame, humiliate, nullify the world. Verse 27, I saved you to shame the wise. Verse 28, I saved you to nullify the things that are considered important by the world. I, I saved you, verse 29, so that no man may boast that they saved themselves. All glory goes to God. So again, he's just hammering away at the Corinthians' perspective of themselves. It was wrong. It was self-centered. It was prideful. They have got to get their eyes back on Christ and give Him the glory and the preeminence and only him. When they start really doing that, then they're going to start talking the right way and behaving the right way, and that will eliminate division in the body of Christ. Can you imagine that? If we did that at GBF, we just thought about, wow, I was pretty pathetic, I mean, in a legitimate way, and I was worthless, and God saved me anyway by His kindness, for His glory, out of His love for me, and the work of Christ, and it was all His initiative. And Man, that is awesome. May I never forget that. What a, what a corrective to our attitudes that would be. I don't deserve salvation. Let me be a servant to you, fellow brother and sister, in the local church. And everybody's just realizing how undeserving they are and how great God is. And then we have one unified theme that binds us together. The glory of Christ and the Father. That knits our hearts together. That's how you get rid of division in the church. But that's what Paul's trying to do. Point number three. 30 and 31. After boast only in God in light of your past condition, note, remembering that, Christian, you are weak and helpless... And then number two, boast only in God in light of His ultimate purpose. That is, it's all about His glory. Number three, boast only in God, not in yourself or other sinful humans. Boast only in God in light of your present standing in Christ. So we were supposed to kind of, you know, do an inventory of what we were like before we got saved. That was ugly. I don't want to stay there very long. Put that behind me. Good. And then the second thing was we're focusing on God and His glory. That's a positive thing. And now... You're focusing on a positive thing about you. So you can't, it's okay to think about yourself, but we've got to think about ourselves the right way. That's the key. And so here, Paul says, you need to think about yourself the right way of who you really are, doing a legitimate evaluation about yourself. And it's not about you, it is the fact that you are in Christ. Look at verse 30. As you look at yourself, don't be self-centered. It's all about God. But by His doing, but by what God has done in your life, it's all His doing, it is not yours, it is not mine. But by His doing, you, Christian, are in Christ. That is a key phrase. Paul uses that phrase over 20 times in Ephesians, reminding the, the Christians of their status and standing before God. Everything that you are in reality and as a Christian and in life is in the sphere and the domain of in Christ. 
Christ lives in me. Christ saved me. It is all for His glory. I live for Him. It's all about Him. I'm accountable to Him and only Him. I will live with Him for all of eternity. Every good thing I have in this life came from Him. It is in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. Swallowed up in the identity of the risen Lord Jesus Christ who saved me. That's how you should think of yourself if you are a Christian. I am in Christ. Every bad thing about me is related to sin. Every good thing about me came as a gift from Christ. My identity is in Christ. But by His doing, you are in Christ. I mean, how encouraging is that if you're really a Christian? You can look at, well, look at all the miserable things in my life and the failures and the sins and the bad habits I have and whatever else. But if you're really a Christian, you can keep coming back to this great truth. But I am in Christ. He loves me. He saved me. I'm in the palm of His hand. He will never let me go. I'm in Christ. We are rooted and anchored in the reality of Christ. Adopted into His family. He is our Savior. He's our elder brother. But by His doing, you're in Christ. Get this. Who became, in other words, we have a new, when you become a Christian, there's a new relationship you have with God. Before you get saved, Scripture is clear. You are an enemy of God. That's what Ephesians says. You're born into this world, spiritually dead, and a hostile enemy to God. The true God and the truth. Doesn't mean you're an atheist. You're hostile to biblical truth, of which is reality. So Ephesians, Paul says, when you, before you got saved, you're an enemy of God. Paul also says, before you got saved, you were a child of wrath. That's who you were. Before you got saved, you were not wise in the ultimate realities of life. You had a wrong worldview. You uh, thought about death the wrong way. You thought about the purpose of life the wrong way. You forgot about the future the wrong way. You forgot about religion. You, know, you thought about spirituality and religion the wrong way. Everything was distorted, darkened. That was you and me before I got saved. I was foolish when it came to ultimate biblical truth. But something happened when you got saved, when I got saved, and that's the middle of verse 30. But by God's doing in Christ Jesus, when you got saved, who became to us wisdom from God. Our eyes were enlightened. The Spirit of God came to live in you, and the Spirit of God enlightened your understanding and so that now you perceive the world in a true and real way for the first time in your life. You weren't deceived anymore and you're able to properly interpret life as it is from God's point of view. Do you know that unbelievers do not have the ability or capability to properly interpret reality in life? They don't. They are blinded by their own sin. They are blinded by Satan himself according to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He has blinded the minds of unbelievers. But once you get saved the scales are ripped away the spirit of god lives in you he illuminates your understanding and now you can see life for what it really is that is god's wisdom that's what he means in verse 30 the middle there where when you became a christian then jesus christ became to you wisdom from god that is amazing and there are three things about that wisdom that paul highlights that became true realities in your life here are the three main things that you came to understand or should understand as a christian now that you see reality for what it is, what is it? Well, it's regarding your salvation. You have true wisdom from God regarding your salvation. So these are three things that are true about you, whether you realize it or not. And these are three good things. What did we come to realize or what should we come to realize after we get saved? That is wisdom from God. Well, the first one in the middle of verse 30 is righteousness. You need to realize that now that you're a Christian, you're considered righteous by God. You were made right with God. This is a synonym of justification. What that means is when you believed in the gospel, whenever that was, say you were four years old or 14 years old or 44 years old, the moment you believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, repented of your sin and got saved, there was a supernatural spiritual transaction that took place in that moment of time and that was called justification. God, the judge of the universe, looked down on you and pronounced you not guilty. It was a declara a legal declaration that God made from heaven the same way that a pastor will say, you are now married, kiss the bride. And there's a declaration and poof, in a moment of time, you're now married. But 20 seconds ago, you're standing there looking at each other, you're not married. But just with a legal declaration, poof, now you are married. Your status has changed, your legal status. That's what this means, righteousness. The moment you believed and were justified, God legally changed your status. You were guilty as charged, worthy and deserving of eternal hell. And when God said, not guilty, he didn't just say not guilty. He said, innocent. 
You are just as innocent as the pristine, sinless Jesus Christ. And your status legally changed in that moment that you believed in the gospel. And that became your permanent status in standing before God. Isn't that amazing? So right now, if you're a Christian, as God the Father looks down from heaven, your legal status or standing, every Christian is the same. Everyone. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian or what your bad habits are or how uh, short you've been a Christian or how much you compromise or how much you sin. Because that's true. Christians are different and vastly. But on this issue, God the Father looks down from heaven and every Christian is the same in your legal status. And it's one answer. You are righteous. You are righteous. You are righteous. You are righteous. Meaning you are forgiven. You have no sin. You are clean. You are pure. You are just like Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's how God views you and me as a Christian today. You are righteous. That is the wisdom of God in the plan of salvation. And that has to do with your past salvation in a moment of time. Then the second one regarding your salvation. After righteousness, he says, you are also given over to sanctification. This is the second component of your salvation. Sanctification. Uh, the The word literally means to be set apart. And this was the word used in the Old Testament when God took Israel and put his love on them and he set them apart to be, get this, different and unique from the nations around them. God does the same thing for a Christian. If you are a Christian, God has saved you and he has set you apart for a special purpose. Set apart to be unique, to stand out is different. There is no reason for a Christian to be living in the world looking like the world. That goes against your very nature of how and why God saved you. You need to be different. You need to look different. You need to act different and think different and speak different. That's what sanctification means. You are set apart. Also rooted in that term sanctification is holiness. God set you apart to be different. How? To live a holy life. That's what it means. Sanctification has everything to do with holiness and godly behavior, saying no to sin. And sanctification also is a process that happens in this life. Righteousness, justification that we just talked about is not a process. That happens at a moment of time and it happened at some time in the past. Sanctification is a process. It is ongoing. It is throughout your life. It is daily living as you are pursuing holiness. It is contingent upon the Spirit of God living in you, prompting you, helping you live the right way. That's the life of sanctification. This is Philippians where Paul told the Christians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the sanctification process. Knowing that it is God, the Spirit, who is actually working in you to make it possible that you can live a life of growing sanctification. So this also has to do with a component of your salvation. And this is the practical part. Daily living, daily holiness, the process throughout your whole life, pursuing Christ-likeness, all those things with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Sanctification. And then finally, there was the past, righteousness, justification. There's the present, working out your salvation and sanctification. And then there's the future component of your salvation. And that's the last word in verse 30, redemption. At the core of redemption, it's a slavery term. It means to, you were a slave, I was a slave. Who are we, who are we slaves of? First and foremost, of sin. But when we got redeemed, redemption means to be purchased or bought out of the slave market with a ransom price that was valuable for the purpose that you might be liberated and set free. So Paul's reminding the Corinthians, you have been redeemed. You were in slavery to sin. You were purchased by someone else who had the authority to do so. That would be the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father. You were purchased with a price that was sufficient. That was the life of Christ himself. His precious blood was the price. And at salvation, you were redeemed and liberated from the tyranny of sin that was your master. And you have been redeemed. It was a past action. It was accomplished by Christ 2,000 years ago with his death on the cross. It began for you and me when we believed in the gospel. We were redeemed. We're being redeemed. We will be redeemed. We haven't fully been liberated from sin yet. And that's why this term comes third. Redemption can mean different things in the Bible depending upon the context. It can refer to initial salvation. It can refer to salvation that's going on during the course of our life. But like in Romans chapter 8, it is very narrow. Redemption, used by the Apostle Paul, refers to 
future salvation, future full and complete deliverance from sin at the resurrection. As a matter of fact, redemption in Romans 8 is synonymous with resurrection glory. And I think that's what Paul's talking about here because he's given a complete picture of your salvation. Don't you realize how the, the multi-blessed nature of your salvation, it is past, it is present, it is future, You've been justified. You are considered totally innocent by God right now in terms of your legal status. The Spirit of God is living in you now in sanctification so that you can be a successful, growing Christian in this life. And the best news of all, you are going to be delivered forever and finally from the tyranny and the presence of sin in your life when you get to heaven. Forever and ever. Isn't that awesome? That is redemption. Resurrection glory in the future. Another way that some theologians have put it, and I think is great, these three components of salvation. Righteousness refers to the deliverance from the penalty, the legal penalty of sin that happened in the past. Sanctification refers to the uh, deliverance of the power of sin in this life. And then redemption refers to the removal of the very presence of sin in glory. So our salvation and what Christ has accomplished for us deals with sin in its totality the legal issue in the past, the ongoing power that it has, and its very presence in the future. That is Christian salvation. That is the wisest, most gracious, amazing truth known and given to humanity by a gracious, loving God that expressed through the life and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, Paul ends with this, like I said, crescendo. So in light of these great truths, Christian, in light of these sobering reminders of how great your salvation is, how we aren't worth anything. We don't amount to anything, but it is all of God. And as a result, Christian, so that just as it is written in Jeremiah, let the Christian who boasts, let the Christian who brags, let the Christian who praises anybody, let it be that he only boasts in the Lord. Let it be that he only boasts in the Savior, Jesus Christ, and to Him be the glory. With that, I want to close on some practical application, you might be asking, well, what's the practical application in this, Pastor Cliff? Well, if you're wise, discerning and closely paying attention, notice that my three points, boast, 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 those are imperatives. Those are commands. Those are things you need to do and I need to do. So what do I do in light of what I just heard? You do point one, two, and three. You monitor the boasting in your life. And part of your prayer life becomes boasting in God and His greatness and His glory. And you know, if you do that, You'll be a humble person. You'll be a person that's easy to get along with in the body of Christ. And also you'll be under the umbrella of God's blessing and protection. You know what? I want to be there. That is the safest place in the world, in the realm of obedience. There's no other place like it. With that, let's go ahead and boast in our great God and give Him the glory in light of His Word. Father, thank You for our time together. Thank You that we could be reminded from the living Word of God that You use with Your Holy Spirit to literally pierce our mind, our conscience, our soul like nothing else can do. And thank You for these, these great just basic reminders. God, You are awesome. We are undeserving. You saved us anyway. We praise You for that. God, help us to have hearts of willing, humble, teachable servants all for your glory we pray in christ's name amen thank you for listening dr mcmanus is an author seminary professor and pastor teacher of grace bible fellowship for more information about dr mcmanus other messages or resources please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009